Section 10 of the Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. Some Words with a Mummy by Edgar Allan Poe. The symposium of the preceding evening had been a little too much for my nerves. I had a wretched headache and was desperately drowsy. Instead of going out, therefore, to spend the evening as I had proposed, it occurred to me that I could not do a wiser thing than just eat a mouthful of supper and go immediately to bed. A light supper, of course. I am exceedingly fond of Welsh rabbit. More than a pound at once, however, may not at all times be advisable. Still, there can be no material objection to two and really between two and three there is merely a single unit of difference i ventured perhaps upon four my wife will have a five but clearly she has confounded two very distinct affairs the abstract number five i am willing to admit but concretely it has reference to bottles of brown stout without which in the way of condiment welsh rabbit is to be eschewed Having thus concluded a frugal meal and donned my nightcap, with a serene hope of enjoying it till noon the next day, I placed my head upon the pillow, and, through the aid of a capital conscience, fell into a profound slumber forthwith. But when were the hopes of humanity fulfilled? I could not have completed my third snore, when there came a furious ringing at the street-door bell, and then an impatient thumping at the knocker which awakened me at once. In a minute afterward, and while I was still rubbing my eyes, my wife thrust in my face a note from my old friend Dr. Poniner. It ran thus. Come to me by all means, my dear good friend, as soon as you receive this. Come and help us rejoice. At last, by long persevering diplomacy, I have gained the assent of the directors of the City Museum to my examination of the mummy. You know the one I mean. I have permission to unswathe it and open it, if desirable. A few friends only will be present, you of course. The mummy is now at my house, and we shall begin to enroll it at eleven tonight. Yours ever, Poniner. By the time I had reached the Poniner, it struck me that I was as wide awake as a man need be. I leapt out of bed in an ecstasy, overthrowing all in my way, dressed myself with a rapidity truly marvellous, and set off at the top of my speed for the doctors. There I found a very eager company assembled. They had been awaiting me with much impatience. The mummy was extended upon the dining table, and the moment I entered its examination was commenced. It was one of a pair brought several years previously by Captain Arthur Sabertash, a cousin of Poniner's from a tomb near El Aethius in the Libyan mountains, a considerable distance above Thebes on the Nile. The grottoes at this point, although less magnificent than the Theban sepulchres, are of higher interest, on account of affording more numerous illustrations of the private life of the Egyptians. The chamber from which our specimen was taken was said to be very rich in such illustrations the walls being completely covered with fresco paintings and bas-reliefs, while statues, vases, and mosaic work of rich patterns indicated the vast wealth of the deceased. The treasure had been deposited in the museum, precisely in the same condition in which Captain Sabertash had found it. 
that is to say the coffin had not been disturbed for eight years it had thus stood subject only externally to public inspection we had now therefore the complete mummy at our disposal and to those who are aware of how very rarely the unransacked antique reaches our shores it will be evident at once that we had great reason to congratulate ourselves upon our good fortune approaching the table i saw on it a large box or case nearly seven feet long and perhaps three feet wide by two feet and a half deep it was oblong not coffin shaped the material was at first supposed to be the wood of the sycamore platanus but upon cutting into it we found it to be pasteboard or more properly paper mache composed of papyrus it was thickly ornamented with paintings representing funeral scenes and other mournful subjects interspersed among which in every variety of position were certain series of hieroglyphical characters intended no doubt for the name of the departed by good luck mr glidden formed one of our party and he had no difficulty in translating the letters which were simply phonetic and represented the word alamastachio we had some difficulty in getting this case open without injury but having at length accomplished the task we came to a second coffin-shaped and very considerably less in size than the exterior one but resembling it precisely in every other respect the interval between the two was filled with resin which had in some degree defaced the colors of the interior box upon opening this latter which we did quite easily we arrived at a third case also coffin-shaped and varying from the second one in no particular except in that of its material which was cedar and still emitted the peculiar and highly aromatic odor of that wood between the second and third case there was no interval the one fitting accurately within the other removing the third case we discovered and took out the body itself we had expected to find it as usual enveloped in frequent rolls or bandages of linen but in place of these we found a sort of sheath made of papyrus and coated with a layer of plaster thickly gilt and painted the paintings represented subjects connected with the various supposed duties of the soul and its presentation to different divinities with numerous identical human figures intended very probably as portraits of the persons embalmed extending from head to foot was a columnar or perpendicular inscription in phonetic hieroglyphics giving again his name and titles and the names and titles of his relations around the neck thus ensheathed was a collar of cylindrical glass beads diverse in color and so arranged as to form images of deities of the scarabareus etc with the winged globe around the small of the waist was a similar collar or belt stripping off the papyrus we found the flesh in excellent preservation with no perceptible odor the color was reddish the skin was hard smooth and glossy the teeth and hair were in good condition the eyes it seemed had been removed and glass ones substituted which were very beautiful and wonderfully lifelike with the exception of somewhat too determined a stare the fingers and the nails were brilliantly gilded mr glidden was of the opinion from the redness of the epidermis that the embalmment had been effected altogether by asphaltum but on scraping the surface with a steel instrument and throwing into the fire some of the powder thus obtained the flavor of camphor and other sweet-scented gums became apparent 
we search the corpse very carefully for the usual openings through which the entrails are extracted but to our surprise we could discover none no member of the party was at that period aware that entire or unopened mummies are not infrequently met the brain it was customary to withdraw through the nose the intestines through an incision in the side the body was then shaved washed and salted then laid aside for several weeks when the operation of embalming properly so called began as no trace of an opening could be found dr poniner was preparing his instruments for dissection when i observed that it was past two o'clock hereupon it was agreed to postpone the internal examination until the next evening and we were about to separate for the present when someone suggested an experiment or two with the voltaic pile the application of electricity to a mummy three or four thousand years old at least was an idea if not very sage still sufficiently original that we all caught it at once about one-tenth in earnest and nine-tenths in jest we arranged a battery in the doctor's study and conveyed thither the egyptian it was only after much trouble that we succeeded in laying bare some portions of the temporal muscle which appeared of less stony rigidity than other parts of the frame but which as we had anticipated of course gave no indication of galvanic susceptibility when brought in contact with the wire this the first trial indeed seemed decisive and with a hearty laugh at our own absurdity we were bidding each other good night when my eyes happening to fall upon those of the mummy were there immediately riveted in amazement my brief glance in fact had sufficed to assure me that the orbs which we had all supposed to be glass and which were originally noticeable for a certain wild stare were now so far covered by the lids that only a small portion of the tunica albuginea remained visible with a shout i called attention to the fact and it became immediately obvious to all i cannot say that i was alarmed at the phenomena because alarmed is in my case not exactly the word it is possible however that but for the brown stout i might have been a little nervous as for the rest of the company they really made no attempt at concealing the downright fright which possessed them dr poniner was a man to be pitied mr glidden by some peculiar process rendered himself invisible mr silk buckingham i fancy will scarcely be so bold as to deny that he made his way upon all fours under the table after the first shock of astonishment however we resolved as a matter of course upon further experiment forthwith our operations were now directed against the great toe of the right foot we made an incision over the outside of the exterior os sesamoidium polices pedis and thus got at the root of the abductor muscle readjusting the battery we now applied the fluid to the bisected nerves when with a moment of exceeding lifelikeness the mummy first drew up its right knee so as to bring it nearly in contact with the abdomen and then straightening the limb with inconceivable force bestowed a kick upon dr poniner which had the effect of discharging that gentleman like an arrow from a catapult through a window into the street below we rushed out en masse to bring in the mangled remains of the victim but had the happiness to meet him upon the staircase coming up in an unaccountable hurry 
brimful of the most ardent philosophy and more than ever impressed with the necessity of prosecuting our experiment with vigor and with zeal it was by his advice accordingly that we made upon the spot a profound incision into the tip of the subject's nose while the doctor himself laying violent hands upon it pulled it into vehement contact with the wire morally and physically figuratively and literally was the effect electric in the first place the corpse opened its eyes and winked very rapidly for several minutes as does mr barnes in the pantomime in the second place it sneezed in the third it sat upon end in the fourth it shook its fist in dr potaner's face in the fifth turning to messrs glidden and buckingham it addressed them in very capital egyptian thus i must say gentlemen that i am as much surprised as i am mortified at your behavior of dr ponner nothing better was to be expected he is a poor little fat fool who knows no better i pity and forgive him but you mr glidden and you silk who have travelled and resided in egypt until one might imagine you to the manner born you i say who have been so much among us that you speak egyptian fully as well i think as you write your mother tongue you who i have always been led to regard as the firm friend of the mummies i really did anticipate more gentlemanly conduct from you what am i to think of your standing quietly by and seeing me thus unhandsomely used what am i to suppose by your permitting tom dick and harry to strip me of my coffins and my clothes in this wretchedly cold climate in what light to come to the point am i to regard your aiding and abetting that miserable little villain dr ponner in pulling me by the nose it will be taken for granted no doubt that upon hearing this speech under the circumstances we all either made for the door or fell into violent hysterics or went off in a general swoon one of these three things was i say to be expected indeed each and all of these lines of conduct might have been very plausibly pursued and upon my word i am at a loss to know how or why it was that we pursued neither the one nor the other but perhaps the true reason is to be sought in the spirit of the age which proceeds by the rule of contraries altogether and is now usually admitted as the solution of everything in the way of paradox and impossibility or perhaps after all it was only the mummy's exceedingly natural and matter-of-course air that divested his words of the terrible however this may be the facts are clear and no member of our party betrayed any very particular trepidation or seemed to consider that anything had gone very especially wrong for my part i was convinced it was all right and merely stepped aside out of the range of the mummy's fist dr ponner thrust his hands into his breeches pockets looked hard at the mummy and grew excessively red in the face mr glidden stroked his whiskers and drew up the collar of his shirt mr buckingham hung down his head and put his right thumb into the left corner of his mouth the egyptian regarded him with a severe countenance for some minutes and at length with a sneer said why don't you speak mr buckingham did you hear what i asked you or not do take your thumb out of your mouth mr buckingham hereupon gave a slight start took his right thumb out of the left corner of his mouth 
and by way of indemnification inserted his left thumb in the right corner of the aperture above mentioned not being able to get an answer from mr b the figure turned peevishly to mr glidden and in a peremptory tone demanded in general terms what we all meant mr glidden replied at great length in phonetics and but for the deficiency of american printing offices in hieroglyphic type it would afford me much pleasure to record here in the original the whole of his very excellent speech i may as well take this occasion to remark that all the subsequent conversation in which the mummy took part was carried on in primitive egyptian through the medium so far as concerned myself and other untravelled members of the company through the medium i say of messrs glidden and buckingham as interpreters these gentlemen spoke the mother tongue of the mummy with inimitable fluency and grace but i could not help observing that owing no doubt to the introduction of images entirely modern and of course entirely novel to the stranger that the two travellers were reduced occasionally to the employment of sensible forms for the purpose of conveying a particular meaning mr glidden at one period for example could not make the egyptian comprehend the term politics until he sketched upon the wall with a bit of charcoal a little carbuncle-nosed gentleman out at the elbows standing upon a stump with his left leg drawn back right arm thrown forward with his fist shut the eyes rolled up toward heaven and the mouth open at an angle of ninety degrees just in the same way mr buckingham failed to convey the absolute modern idea of wig until at dr poniner's suggestion he grew very pale in the face and consented to take off his own it will be readily understood that mr glidden's discourse turned chiefly upon the vast benefits accruing to science from the unrolling and disemboweling of mummies apologizing upon this score for any disturbance that might have been occasioned him in particular the individual mummy called alamastachio and concluding with a mere hint for it could scarcely be considered more that as these little manners were now explained it might be well to proceed with the investigation intended here dr poniner made ready his instruments in regard to the latter suggestion of the orator it appears that alamastachio had certain scruples of conscience the nature of which i did not distinctly learn but he expressed himself satisfied with the apologies tendered and getting down from the table shook hands with the company all round when this ceremony was at an end we immediately busied ourselves in repairing the damages which our subject had sustained from the scalpel we sewed up the wound in his temple bandaged his foot and applied a square inch of black plaster to the tip of his nose it was now observed that the count this was the title it seems of alamastachio had a slight fit of shivering no doubt from the cold the doctor immediately repaired to his wardrobe and soon returned with a black dress coat made in jennings best manner a pair of sky-blue plaid pantaloons with straps a pink gingham chemise a flapped vest of brocade a white sack overcoat a walking cane with a hook a hat with no brim patent leather boots straw-coloured kid gloves an eyeglass a pair of whiskers and a waterfall cravat owing to the disparity of size between the count and the doctor the proportion being as two to one 
there was some little difficulty in adjusting these habiliments upon the person of the egyptian but when all was arranged he might have been said to be dressed mr glidden therefore gave him his arm and led him to a comfortable chair by the fire while the doctor rang the bell upon the spot and ordered a supply of cigars and wine the conversation soon grew animated much curiosity was of course expressed in regard to the somewhat remarkable fact of Alla Mustachio's still remaining alive. I should have thought, observed Mr. Buckingham, that it is high time you were dead. Why, replied the Count, very much astonished, I am little more than seven hundred years old. My father lived a thousand, and was by no means in his dotage when he died. Here ensued a brisk series of questions and computations, by means of which it became evident that the antiquity of the mummy had been grossly misjudged. It had been five thousand and fifty years and some months since he had been consigned to the catacombs at Eleithias. But my remark, resumed Mr. Buckingham, had no reference to your age at the period of interment. I am willing to grant, in fact, that you are still a young man, and my allusion was to the immensity of time during which, by your own showing, you must have been done up in asphaltum. In what? said the Count in asphaltum persisted mr b ah yes i have some faint notion of what you mean it might be made to answer no doubt but in my time we employed scarcely anything else than the bichloride of mercury but what we are especially at a loss to understand said dr poninger is how it happens that having been dead and buried in egypt five thousand years ago you are here to-day all alive and looking so delightfully well had i been as you say dead replied the count it is more than probable that dead i should still be for i perceive you are yet in the infancy of calvinism and cannot accomplish with it what was a common thing among us in the old days but the fact is i fell into catalepsy and it was considered by my best friends that i was either dead or should be they accordingly embalmed me at once. I presume you are aware of the chief principle of the embalming process. Why, not altogether. Why, I perceive a deplorable condition of ignorance. Well, I cannot enter into details just now, but it is necessary to explain that to embalm, properly speaking, in Egypt, was to arrest indefinitely all the animal functions subjected to the process. I use the word animal in its widest sense, as including the physical, not more than the moral and vital being. I repeat that the leading principle of embalmment consisted with us in the immediately arresting and holding in perpetual abeyance all the animal functions subjected to the process. To be brief, in whatever condition the individual was at the period of embalmment, in that condition he remained now as it is my good fortune to be of the blood of the scarabarius i was embalmed alive as you see me at present the blood of the scarabarius exclaimed dr poninger yes the scarabarius was the insignium or the arms of a very distinguished and very rare patrician family to be of the blood of the scarabarius is merely to be one of that family of which the scarabarius is the insignium 
I speak figuratively. But what has this to do with you being alive? Why, it is the general custom in Egypt to deprive a corpse, before embalmment, of its bowels and brains. The race of the Scarabarii alone did not coincide with the custom. Had I not been a Scarabarius, therefore, I should have been without bowels and brains, and without either it is inconvenient to live. I perceive that, said Mr. Buckingham, and I presume that all the entire mummies that come to hand are of the race of the Scarabarii. Beyond doubt. I thought, said Mr. Glidden, very meekly, that the Scarabarius was one of the Egyptian gods. One of the Egyptian what? exclaimed the mummy, starting to its feet. Gods, repeated the traveller. Mr. Glidden. I really am astonished to hear you talk in this style, said the Count, resuming his chair. No nation upon the face of the earth has ever acknowledged more than one god. The Scarabarius, the Ibis, etc., were to us, as similar creatures have been with others, the symbols, or media through which we offered worship to the Creator, too august to be more directly approached. There was here a pause. At length the colloquy was renewed by Dr. Poniner. "'It is not improbable, then, from what you have explained,' said he, "'that among the catacombs near the Nile there may exist other mummies of the Scarabarius tribe in a condition of vitality?' "'There can be no question of it,' replied the Count. "'All the Scarabarii, embalmed accidentally while alive, are alive now.' Even some of those purposely so embalmed may have been overlooked by their executors and still remain in the tomb. Will you be kind enough to explain, I said, what you mean by purposely so embalmed? With great pleasure, answered the mummy, after surveying me leisurely through his eyeglass, for it was the first time I had ventured to address him a direct question. With great pleasure, he said, the usual duration of a man's life in my time was about eight hundred years. Few men died, unless by most extraordinary accident before the age of six hundred. Few lived longer than a decade of centuries, but eight were considered the natural term. After the discovery of the embalming principle, as I have already described it to you, it occurred to our philosophers that a laudable curiosity might be gratified, and, at the same time, the interest of science much advanced by living this natural term in installments. In the case of history, indeed, experience demonstrated that something of this kind was indispensable. An historian, for example, having attained the age of five hundred, would write a book with great labor and then get himself carefully embalmed, leaving instructions to his executors pro tem that they should cause him to be revivified after the lapse of a certain period, say five or six hundred years. Resuming existence at the expiration of this time, he would invariably find his great work converted into a species of haphazard notebook. That is to say, into a kind of literary arena for the conflicting guesses, riddles, and personal squabbles of whole herds of exasperated commentators these guesses etc which passed under the name of annotations or emendations were found so completely to have enveloped distorted and overwhelmed the text 
that the author had to go about with a lantern to discover his own book when discovered it was never worth the trouble of the search after rewriting it throughout it was regarded as the bounden duty of the historian to set himself to work immediately in correcting from his own private knowledge and experience the traditions of the day concerning the epoch at which he had originally lived now this process of rescription and personal rectification pursued by various individual sages from time to time had the effect of preventing our history from degenerating into absolute fable i beg your pardon said dr poniner at this point laying his hand gently upon the arm of the egyptian i beg your pardon sir but may i presume to interrupt you for one moment by all means sir replied the count drawing up i merely wish to ask you a question said the doctor you mentioned the historian's personal correction of the traditions respecting his own epoch pray sir upon an average what proportion of these cabala were usually found to be right the cabala as you properly term them sir were generally discovered to be precisely on a par with the facts recorded in the unrewritten histories themselves that is to say not one individual iota of either was ever known under any circumstances to not be totally and radically wrong but since it is quite clear resumed the doctor that at least five thousand years have elapsed since your entombment i take it for granted that your histories at that period if not your traditions were sufficiently explicit on that one topic of universal interest the creation which took place as i presume you are aware only about ten centuries before sir said the count alamastachio the doctor repeated his remarks but it was only after much additional explanation that the foreigner could be made to comprehend them the latter at length said hesitatingly the ideas you have suggested are to me i confess utterly novel during my time i never knew any one to entertain so singular a fancy as that the universe or this world if you would have it so ever had a beginning at all i remember once and only once hearing something remotely hinted by a man of many speculations concerning the origin of the human race and by this individual the very word adam or red earth which you make use of was employed he employed it however in a generical sense with reference to the spontaneous germination from rank soil just as a thousand of lower genera of creatures are germinated the spontaneous germination i say of five vast hordes of men simultaneously upspringing in five distinct and nearly equal divisions of the globe here in general the company shrugged their shoulders and one or two of us touched our foreheads with a very significant air mr silk buckingham first glancing slightly at the occiput and then at the sensiput of alamastachio spoke as follows the long duration of human life in your time together with the occasional practice of passing it as you have explained in installments must have had indeed a strong tendency to the general development and conglomeration of knowledge i presume therefore that we are to attribute the marked inferiority of the old egyptians in all particulars of science when compared with the moderns and more especially with the yankees altogether to the superior solidity of the egyptian skull i confess again replied the count with much suavity that i am somewhat at a loss to comprehend you 
pray to what particulars of science do you allude here our whole party joining voices detailed at great length the assumptions of phrenology and the marvels of animal magnetism having heard us to an end the count proceeded to relate a few anecdotes which rendered it evident that the prototypes of gall and spurzheim had flourished and faded in egypt so long ago as to have been nearly forgotten and that the manoeuvres of mesmer were really very contemptible tricks when put in collation with the positive miracles of the theban savants who created lice and a great many other similar things i here asked the count if his people were able to calculate eclipses he smiled rather contemptuously and said they were this put me a little out but i began to make other inquiries in regard to his astronomical knowledge when a member of the company who had never as yet opened his mouth whispered in my ear that for information on this head i had better consult ptolemy whoever ptolemy is as well as one plutarch de fasci lunae i then questioned the mummy about burning glasses and lenses and in general about the manufacture of glass but i had not made an end to my queries before the silent member again touched me quietly on the elbow and begged me for god's sake to take a peep at diodorus siculus as for the count he merely asked me in the way of reply if we moderns possessed any such microscopes as would enable us to cut cameos in the style of the egyptians while i was thinking how i should answer this question little dr poniner committed himself in a very extraordinary way look at our architecture he exclaimed greatly to the indignation of both the travellers who pinched him black and blue to no purpose look he cried with enthusiasm at the bowling green fountain in new york or if this be too vast a contemplation regard for a moment the capitol at washington d c and the good little medical man went on to detail very minutely the proportions of the fabric to which he referred he explained that the portico alone was adorned with no less than four and twenty columns five feet in diameter and ten feet apart the count said that he regretted not being able to remember just at that moment the precise dimensions of any one of the principal buildings of the city of asnac whose foundations were laid in the night of time but the ruins of which were still standing at the epoch of his entombment in a vast plain of sand to the westward of thebes he recollected however talking of the porticos that one affixed to an inferior palace of a kind of suburb called karnak consisted of a hundred and forty-four columns thirty-seven feet in circumference and twenty-five feet apart the approach to this portico from the nile was through an avenue two miles long composed of sphinxes statues and obelisks twenty sixty and a hundred feet in height the palace itself as well as he could remember was in one direction two miles long and it might have been altogether about seven in circuit its walls were richly painted all over within and without with hieroglyphics he would not pretend to assert that even fifty or sixty of the doctor's capitals might have been built within these walls but he was by no means sure that the two or three hundred of them might not have been squeezed in with some trouble the palace at karnak was an insignificant little building after all he the count however could not conscientiously refuse to admit the ingenuity magnificence and superiority of the fountain at the bowling green as described by the doctor 
nothing like it he was forced to allow had ever been seen in egypt or elsewhere i here asked the count what he had to say to our railroads nothing he replied in particular they were rather slight rather ill-conceived and clumsily put together they could not be compared of course with the vast level direct iron-grooved causeways upon which the egyptians conveyed entire temples and solid obelisks of a hundred and fifty feet in altitude i spoke of our gigantic mechanical forces he agreed that we knew something in that way but inquired how i should have gone to work in getting up the imposts on the lintels of even the little palace at karnak this question i concluded not to hear and demanded if he had any idea of artesian wells but he simply raised his eyebrows while mr glidden winked at me very hard and said in a low tone that one had been recently discovered by the engineers employed to bore for water in the great oasis i then mentioned our steel but the foreigner elevated his nose and asked me if our steel could have executed the sharp carved work seen on the obelisks and which had been wrought altogether by edged tools of copper this disconcerted us so greatly that we thought it advisable to vary the attack to metaphysics we sent for a copy of a book called the dial and read out a chapter or two about something that is not very clear which the bostonians call the great movement of progress the count merely said that the great movements were awfully common things in his day and as for progress it was at one time quite a nuisance but it never progressed we then spoke of the great beauty and importance of democracy and were at much trouble in impressing the count with a due sense of the advantages we enjoyed in living where there was suffrage ad libitum and no king he listened with marked interest and in fact seemed not a little amused when we had done he said that a great while ago there had occurred something of a very similar sort thirteen egyptian provinces determined all at once to be free and to set a magnificent example to the rest of mankind they assembled their wise men and concocted the most ingenious constitution it was possible to conceive for a while they managed remarkably well only their habit of bragging was prodigious the thing ended however in the consolidation of the thirteen states with some fifteen or twenty others in the most odious and insupportable despotism that was ever heard of upon the face of the earth i asked what was the name of the usurping tyrant as well as the count could recollect it was mob not knowing what to say to this i raised my voice and deplored the egyptian ignorance of steam the count looked at me with much astonishment but made no answer the silent gentleman however gave me a violent nudge in the ribs with his elbows told me i had sufficiently exposed myself for once and demanded if i was really such a fool as not to know that the modern steam engine is derived from the invention of hero through solomon de caus we were now in imminent danger of being discomfited but as good luck would have it dr ponner having rallied returned to our rescue and inquired if the people of egypt would seriously pretend to rival the moderns in the all-important particular of dress the count at this glanced downward to the straps of his pantaloons and then taking hold of the end of one of his coat-tails held it up close to his eyes for some minutes letting it fall at last his mouth extended itself very gradually from ear to ear but i do not remember that he said anything in the way of reply 
hereupon we recovered our spirits and the doctor approaching the mummy with great dignity desired it to say candidly upon its honour as a gentleman if the egyptians had comprehended at any period the manufacture of either poniner's lozenges or brandreth's pills we looked with profound anxiety for an answer but in vain it was not forthcoming the egyptian blushed and hung down his head never was triumph more consummate never was defeat borne with so ill a grace indeed i could not endure the spectacle of the poor mummy's mortification i reached my hat bowed to him stiffly and took leave upon getting home i found it past four o'clock and went immediately to bed it is now ten a m i have been up since seven penning these memoranda for the benefit of my family and of mankind the former i shall behold no more my wife is a shrew the truth is i am heartily sick of this life and of the nineteenth century in general i am convinced that everything is going wrong besides i am anxious to know who will be president in twenty forty five as soon therefore as i shave and swallow a cup of coffee i shall just step over to poniner's and get embalmed for a couple of hundred years End of section 10